Hello, this is The Spectator podcast and I'm Laura Prendergast. As Matteo Salvini looks to consolidate power in Italy, we ask what exactly defines the far right these days? We also take a look at Downing Street's own power grab as it seeks to centralise control over the rest of Whitehall. And finally, Melissa Kite tells me about getting her dogs blessed in a London church. When Matteo Salvini came into government last year, everyone from The Guardian to the FT dubbed him a far-right politician. But in a changing Europe where both Euroscepticism and nationalism are on the rise, who are the real far-right today? Douglas Murray poses the question in this week's cover piece and argues that overusing the label is both wrong and dangerous. He joins me down the line together with Anne McElvoy, senior editor of The Economist. Douglas, can you start by explaining to listeners what you understand the term far-right to mean and why you think it's become such a blurred term? Well, several things. Obviously, this is spurred by the uh, political developments in Italy, where it looks like Matteo Salvini's Liga, if Italy is to go to the polls again soon, will come out certainly uh, on top in those polls. And the Liga, formerly the Liga Nord, generally been described in the foreign press as far right. It's It's been regarded as pretty far right within Italy and within Italian politics. And uh, one of the things I'm interested in, and I try to explore in this piece, is the fact that several things are happening at the same time. There's obviously movements within Europe. There are obviously problems with what have been regarded as, you know, mainstream, indeed centrist uh, policies on a whole range of issues. A number of people have been using the term far right, like other similar terms, in order to basically excommunicate certain people or parties. And there has been an understanding historically of what far right does entail, for instance, parties that would seek to end, indeed destroy, bring down democratic institutions, parties that are willing uh, to, for instance, indulge in violence, and various other things that, that we would, I think, all agree on as sort of the litmus tests that make parties far right. But here, here it seems to me is the problem. Firstly, that the term has been wildly overused. Secondly, that there's too little curiosity about movements that are occurring, as in parties of historically the far right potentially moving to a more centre-right position. And then just this whole mess of what do you do when you actually have groups and parties that are undoubtedly able to be classified in, I think it would be agreed on by most people, to be far right. And yet they are called far right and so are parties that are undoubtedly more moderate than them. So my suggestion is this whole area has to be thought about because European politics is changing and we've got to make sure that our terminology is up to date. And what do you understand by the term far right within the context of European politics? Well, I think Douglas is right that it's a more contested term than it has been. But I think you come down to an analysis of whether the centre has moved, in which case things that would once have just been seen as far right on our right, I mean, something has moved that way, if you assume that the spectrum has moved that way. On the left, you could say that's also obviously changed. If Jeremy Corbyn here in, in Britain is the backstop to coin a phrase of of where the hard left is. Well, that's clearly much further left than where a lot of the traditional left used to be. So this sort of elasticity, if you like, of the political spectrum is one of the phenomena we're going through. What I'm not so sure about is whether the problem that Douglas is describing is really one of taxonomy, that it's a bit difficult to decide when to call something far right and when not to. Well, that's an issue mainly for journalists and those who describe politics, 
all weather is saying there's a philosophical shift that we have to deal with and which is more of a challenge and your piece Douglas is written as if it's a bit of a challenge only to the the old centre but in fact the old centre might have held up left and right rather better had the economics not changed to the detriment of a a lot of people so I think there's quite a lot to unpack from what you've Mm -hmm. written. Yes, I mean, I agree. I think my own view is it's a bit of both, both that the European politics is moving and that we're stuck with this slightly out-of-date political lexicon. And I think it's a combination of those two things that requires more attention to be paid for this. Douglas, one of the things you also talk about in your piece is nationalism. I mean, do you think people often equate nationalist movements with being far-right? And and if so, I mean, why do you think that is? Yes, I mean, they are often equated. They're not synonymous, but certainly in recent years, in Western Europe, uh, certainly, uh, uh, nationalism has been seen to be at least a sort of precursor to fascism of some kind. I, I think this in itself is, is undergoing a, a lot of rethinking. I think that's a, it's been a, a lazy interpretation. There have been some very interesting writings recently on this question, most prominently Yoram Hadsoni, the Israeli historian's, book on the case for nationalism. And this ground is certainly shifting as well. But one of the suggestions I make in the the piece is that there's a particular problem that's been going on here with what has been regarded as the place to put the cordon sanitaire. Because in my view, the cordon sanitaire that has been able to define some things as beyond the pale, far right, achieved overstretch by claiming that things that were actually very popular, not necessarily populist, but popular, like uh, secure borders or preferring uh, national autonomy to supranational institutions, that once these things were put beyond the pale, and then it turned out that these were majority opinions, everything necessarily has to shift. And I certainly wouldn't put nationalism beyond that pale. But this, again, requires some rethinking from where we've been in recent years. But my challenge to you uh, in return, Douglas, may be that for a lot of years, the media of the right, by which I mean the centre right, not the extreme right, I find extreme a bit easier to, to use my, myself, other, others might might have challenges, went on banging on for years calling anybody who had any redistributive policies hard left or far left or loony left or, you know, yes. you name it. And and the, the spectator will not, I think, be able to entirely say that it was not part of that. So, so in a way, it's what goes around comes around, isn't it? If you have caricatures, eventually things will reality will overtake you as it has done when Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell take hold of things and now even if you don't say so you'd probably rather have Gordon Brown back. Uh, I'm I'm happy to say I'd rather have Gordon Brown back with the Labour Party leadership. Yes I concede that that there's been some terminological overstretch uh, in all directions and much of it as I say in the piece for short-term political gain. I mean, I think it's undoubted that obviously Jeremy Corbyn is further to the left than the Labour Party has been in a long time, if not perhaps ever. And so calling him far left is perhaps legitimate. I I would have said it it is. But here's the problem in a way is far left does not have the connotation that far right does. And this is something that I think everybody is aware of and everyone who uses all the terminology knows. Far left suggests to most people's ears, I'm suggesting to the public ears, far left suggests a bit loony, well-meaning, but probably incompetent, among other things. Far right means Hitler, Nazism, fascism, you've got to kill them, basically. I mean, this is it is the most defenestrating term for us in Europe because of our 20th century. 
And obviously that shifts from country to country in some in some ways, as I mentioned in the piece. But but it is that it's the fact that, as it were, people can survive with being described as far left. It's very hard to see how a plausible party of the right of kinds I mentioned in the piece are expected to survive if they are actually to be forever deemed to be far right because well, of the complete anathema I mean, that exists that around the term. The premise, sorry. Doesn't that undercut the premise of the piece? Because your point is they do seem to be thriving despite having this label hung around their necks. And it's actually the centre that is embattled, insecure, doesn't really know what it is. I mean, being called far right doesn't seem to, to be holding them back that much. Well, that's the thing. I, I agree. I mean, it is a problem that has existed in the political centre, and particularly, I think, from the 2008 crash onwards. But it's also this it's this issue, as I say, that a number of these parties, I, I give the example of the Sweden Democrats in the piece, have done pretty well in recent years. I mean, the Sweden Democrats are now the third largest party in Sweden. But, I mean, have had years of being effectively compared to Adolf Hitler. And that definitely does have a dampening effect. It has a dampening effect, among other things, of making all other Swedish parties refuse to have anything to do with them or go into coalition with them, even when it makes political sense for them to go into coalition with them. So it clearly has some effect. I mean, otherwise people wouldn't use the term so freely. And I think they have used it freely of some parties, or at least carelessly. But the problem we're into now is clearly the term's utility has broken down at some point. As I say in the piece, perhaps if, if everybody can be called a fascist, we risk entering an era where we think nobody is a fascist. And that's that's the problem that I suggest that Italian politics in particular is going into. If the Liga are to be continued to be called far right, what do we call a fairly openly fascist organisation in Italy like Casa Pound, who don't even try to hide in their name what they're trying to hark back to? Just finally, Douglas, one of the other points you make in your piece is that you say new parties are viewed with suspicion, but old parties have a history. I mean, how can parties avoid this trap of being labelled as far right? Well, I mean, first of all, to not be far right and not give off the signals <laughs> that would make them far right. I mean, I'm not suggesting how parties should should moderate. I'm saying what should a reasonable outside view be of the political situation in, in our neighbouring countries in the years ahead, if this movement is to continue. And this particular conundrum, because as I mentioned in the piece in recent years, I've, I've done an awful lot of travelling, more than normal, and have taken the opportunity everywhere I am to, to try to speak to a wide range of politicians and try to work out some of this terrain. And the particular point you put your finger on is, is one that concerns me. New parties, for instance, like the AFD in Germany, are often treated with exceptional suspicion because of, among other things, their newness. And as I mentioned in the piece, there are lots of other problems with them. But we're suspicious of new parties, and yet old parties on the continent, inevitably because of the continent's 20th century, are also a problem. So Vlaams Belang in Belgium, the Freedom Party in Austria, whose founders were mired in fascism. The question then is, if everybody has a history, and that's a problem, and new parties are a problem, what do we do? And my only answer to it is, well, two answers. One is, we've got to be thinking about this a lot better than we are. And the second is, to be much more interested in the details than I think, perhaps inevitably, in a monomaniac but, country I mean, as we live in at the moment. We need main, to be obsessed with. Mainstream conservatives a bit off the hook here, Douglas. The, the, the job, not, not only for journalists, for anyone involved in the political debate or interested in it, is to decide which forms of 
nationalism you find acceptable, given that there is clearly a resurgence of something that looks, whether it is a soft nationalism via Brexit or, or something more assertive or even, at the margins, aggressive. Now, isn't that the real challenge to conservatives who would once have been pretty sure of where their kind of beliefs began and ended. Now, you could find very different views, say, on the immigration question among those who don't consider themselves extreme. So the days of the liberal conservative would, broadly speaking, favour higher levels of immigration and just thought they were a net good to the economy and we should kind of get on with it, are now countered and are indeed in government countered by those who think it's a great idea to, to try to get the numbers as, as low as possible and not really worry about what benefits they may be sacrificing along the way. That seems to me to be more the problem than what do we call such and such a party? Well, that's an issue for the right to be thinking about. But the particular issue of, as it were, where the anathematizing name should be used is, is I think, a separate pr- problem from that one. And the anathematizing, for instance... But they're all to do with nationalism and you cite it yourself as something that is in the air and it either in the form of, so someone once said, folk dancing in barbed wire at the negative extremes, but also as a, a guiding principle, whether it's the AFD in Germany or, or whether it is Marine Le Pen in France or whether in a different way it's Brexit in Britain. I mean, it seems to me they are part of the warp and weft of a change of politics on the right. Yes, it's undoubted, as I said, that the, the political mood of the continent has shifted and is in, in the process of shifting. But as I say, if, if that is the case then there are things that we still need to work out. For instance, I mean, I give the example in the piece of the AFD because it came home to sort of bite Jacob Rees-Mogg when he just retweeted a, a speech by a member, a fairly moderate member of the leadership of the AFD. But it's much more pertinent with a case like, till recently, the coalition government in Austria. You know, I, I still don't know myself what our attitude should be towards a party like the Freedom Party once it's in government. And I just sort of, it's not, I'm not ducking this. I'm saying that this, because this is an ongoing issue, we have to try to work out what our views should be. I mean, I don't just mean we as individuals, but we as a country, towards countries which are going to be governed by parties which, until recently at any rate, we held our nose at. Do we think that they've changed? Do we think that our nose has changed? I would submit that we should try not to allow that to happen. Or do we allow that a whole set of things are happening and we've got to find some way to draw lines? I, I'm in favour of some lines. I'm, I'm just saying that I don't think I can work it out on my own. I, I'm not pretending I can, but I do I want... I tempted to say then draw some. Well, as I say, I've drawn a few. I've tried to draw three in the piece and I've explained what parties I think at this very moment you could definitely say go beyond the cordon sanitaire. It's a place to start and to say that certain parties have moved in. But as I also mentioned in the piece, that the most uh, unrewarding job in uh, political analysis these days is to try to explain which parties used to be far right and aren't anymore, because there is just a world of pain there, as we all know. Thank you, Douglas and Anne. And to hear more from Anne McElvoy, she takes a look at Franco-German relations for Radio 4 in a recent documentary, France and Germany, Divided They Stand. Hello, I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts 
where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk. Back home, Boris Johnson is almost a month into his premiership. And while some predicted a bombastic laissez-faire government, Prime Minister Johnson has in fact run a fairly tight ship. This is in no small part thanks to his chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, who has turned number 10 into a boot camp. Katie Balls writes about the sleek Downing Street operation in her political column this week, and she joins me now. Also with us is Jonathan Haslam, former communications director to John Major. Katie, can you start by taking us through the new dynamics in number 10 as you see them? Yes, I think since Boris Johnson arrived, actually, perhaps better start before he arrived, there was lots of speculation about what type of government he would have. Under Theresa May, it was a very chaotic government, at least I think from the point that the snap election when she lost the Conservative majority, and you had lots of ministers basically freelancing, doing what they liked, their staff working very much for the minister, not really listening to Number 10 when it tried to take control. I think people thought that Boris Johnson would restore some form of order but was still like, there was some talk about having almost a freestyle government the idea that he would let cabinet ministers do their own thing to some degree he wasn't afraid to appoint talent Theresa May was criticised for often appointing close allies rather than people who be best for the job but I think what's been really interesting since Boris Johnson entered Downing Street is one of his first appointments was Dominic Cummings the former campaign director of Vote Leave and I think since that point was made, you've actually seen this big effort to centralise power again in Downing Street. Now, some people think it's uh, perhaps too strict. I think that ultimately those inside it would see it as restoring the traditional principles of government. So you see this new 6pm meeting for special advisors, so all the government aides, on Fridays. Now Fridays used to be a bit of a bunk day. It was quite hard to track special advisors down or if you did there might be a foreign dial tone. Perhaps they were on a weekend away that started early and it's now these things such as being there at the end of the day, you had the other week on a Sunday night, aides were told that they needed to be in Downing Street for a 7.55 meeting. So you have this campaign mode government, which is trying to get people over August, they've cancelled all the government leave. But I think fundamentally, some of the changes are the fact that uh, special advisors are now uh, employed by the cabinet office, not by individual departments. You've had Dominic Cummings tell uh, aides that actually number 10 is their boss. And if they see their secretary of state, so they're a minister that they work for freelancing or going off message they should tell number 10 that is their duty so I think you see it there and also just in terms of the cabinet ministers you have a lot more meetings you have figures who say they now are going to number 10 on almost a daily basis and clear instructions so I think there's a sense that you're not being left to your own devices. I say civil servants, uh, although they might not perhaps agree with the ideology of this project, I've spoken to one who said that they were very relieved to actually know what they were doing. So I think this government is defined by having a lot more direction, a lot more rules. And at the moment, I would say broadly speaking, although some have likened it to the secret police where you're supposed to report on people, people are happy to go along with it because they realise it's a really crucial point for the Conservative Party. Jonathan, you worked in number 10 under John Major. I mean, how important is discipline 
within the government at this stage. Do you think? Discipline <laughs> always helps, and the stricter the better, as far as I was concerned. Do, do you admire what Don Cummings is doing at the moment? Oh, it's a quite interesting. We love to have a Sven Garley figure, and particularly at this time of year. And much, a great deal of what uh, Katie has just said is absolutely on the button. I would put in some context around that. First of all, we're in a recess. So it is important that you don't have that disturbance of parliament. And when you have a a number of people like the special advisers who are now enthralled to the cabinet office and Dominic Cummings, it does help. You do also have uh, that honeymoon period in terms of government. So people are, the secretaries of state, beholden to Boris Johnson wanting to do what he wants them to do. And you've got a single project, really, which is preparing for a no-deal Brexit. So there is a lot of focus and discipline around that. We haven't had the briefings out of cabinet meetings yet, but it will happen, those messages will spread. Johnson is at his strongest at the moment. Every passing day, you slightly lose a bit of power and authority. So the context of which we're working is fine. And it's very early days. And I think that you would see things probably start to fray around the edges the closer you get to September, and then back into the parliamentary session, and the time that more pressure is on people. So yes, of course, Dominic Cummings is important. We like to have that sort of figure. It's very nice to have somebody pick up the phone and pay attention from you, and generally it does work when you're in number 10. Let's just not get carried away, because it's still very early days yet. Katie, in your piece you mentioned the grid. Uh, Can you explain how that exactly works? So under the Blair government, the grid was very important, and it has been used by many successive governments since, but the grid is ultimately a spreadsheet which puts every policy announcement in it and every plan for any government event. Now, I think that depending on the authority of your government, how close the grid is followed uh, is up for debate. Now, this is definitely a government in its early stages that see that you can't do anything if it's not on the grid. And I think that's the idea that these ministers are very tightly controlled. So you wouldn't really have a, a minister freelancing and giving an interview where they might accidentally announce a new policy. I think one of the important comparisons here is some of the stuff and if you speak you speak to certain figures who are involved, so we're not really doing anything controversial here. We're just doing things that, as you would expect a government to normally run. But we haven't had an election. We've just had a switch. We had a changing of government during the Tories' term. And it's because of what became before. So under Theresa May, there was such a lack of discipline. Every cabinet meeting almost leaked out to the press. It was just a matter of how quickly it would. And you also had, I think, ministers not really consulting number 10 about what they planned to be doing, giving speeches anyway, even if they hadn't been greenlit, touching on other people's departments. So what you're seeing is this government trying, attempting to pull back authority and get people who probably were misbehaving two months ago to suddenly start paying attention so grid government is something we're we're back on and also you had uh, so I understand Boris Johnson this week wrote a personal letter to every secretary of state detailing what their personal objectives for their department or what he thought their objectives should be both on Brexit and domestic issues and I think it's again it's trying to just add this sense of purpose and I think there are some people who do think that the the long hours if you look at like the various things because this government doesn't necessarily have that much time before it perhaps faces a parliamentary showdown or if that goes wrong a general election and needs to use every moment but it does mean for example like aides cannot go on holiday ministers are very if they're overseas it's because they're on government business so I think there's a question over how long they're willing to put up 
for this level of control but the grid is one of the ways in which they're trying to say you can't do anything without going through us and if you actually misbehave we're not going to look after you or say oh it's a mistake we are going to be hardline about that. Jonathan Katie you mentioned earlier that aides are being encouraged to almost grass on their ministers. I mean, is that normal practice God, in government? Stalinist, isn't it? <laughs> it sounds Maoist. Wicked, you know. Where is the first aide who's going to admit going to rat out his Secretary of State? I'm absolutely enthralled to this. This is uh, this is great fun, isn't it, in many respects. One or two things, I would, if I could, Lara, just come back to the points that you were making. And I think it's, again, around about context. Prime Minister writing to Secretaries of State saying what he expected. Well, John Major did that. That's just good person management, and it it happens. We mentioned hours that are being worked and holidays cancelled. Well, frankly, I'd cancel MPs' holidays as well at the moment and get them back on piste so that they can actually take some action. And if somebody had said to me that, uh, Haslam, you've got to work 11 hours a day, I'd said, well, I'll kiss you on both cheeks and say thank you because it's a bit of a change from the 15 to 16 I generally do. (laughs) I expect them to be going to work very hard. should get you in for a pep talk. I know, I think... I should also, I'd like to go along to the seven o'clock on Friday because uh, is the taxpayer funding the booze? That's the other thing that I want to know that's being implied there. There's many stories to come out of this one. The colour's going to be fantastic. So if we just go back to where we are, the grid, by the way, is fantastic. Yeah, We used to call it a diary. And it all comes down to the level of authority that your minister has, in this case, the prime minister. If your prime minister isn't respected, then you are going to have a problem. If your Prime Minister is respected, and to an extent, yes, feared, you you can be out on your ear next, then people are going to pay attention. The thing with Theresa May's government was, of course, as you rightly said, Katie, lack of discipline, briefing against each other, a parliament that was in ferment, attempting to do something on the European Union side and deals, and everything else being lost in the way. So, yeah, there is a sense of direction. It's, it's all directed at underpinning what could happen in a general election campaign. And that's a good thing. That does give us all a bit of confidence. And if we go back, you went back quite a long way, Katie, and I would go back even further to the earliest parts when Johnson saw that rugby ball coming out of the back of the scrum again. And the sense of discipline, the loss of weight, the hair, which wasn't all over the place. And of course, obviously, you can see from me, I'm hugely jealous. But all (laughs) of those things that are important. And then having Lister around him and that team that he had from the Leave campaign that give him comfort. And the sense of discipline around him as an individual has been really important. So he is leading in that respect. And the sort of things that he's talking about, again, with the freedom A, not to count the cost, because if you count how much money he's proposing to spend at the moment, the IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, will tell you it's a very large sum of money. But he has got that opportunity to put out in a relatively quiet time a number of things that people will feel quite strongly about and will feel have been ignored and not coped with under Theresa May. So that all helps. So there is a fascinating sense here of much going on, a lot of planning for no deal, But actually, when we're talking about Europe, are we putting anything positive forward? Do we see a way forward? Or do we just see a man who said, I bet the bank on leaving and we're leaving on the 31st. And you know what, Parliament? I don't think you could stop it. You just mentioned an election, Jonathan. I mean, do you think it's pretty obvious that that's what this government is gearing up for? Oh, it's essential. Really, we do have to just get our heads around the fact 
he has no majority worth talking about. You cannot be enthralled to the DUP forever and a day. First of all, it's expensive. And secondly, frankly, I don't like them very much. And I think there's quite a large number of people in Northern Ireland who'd shared my point of view. And I think they're a little bit of retrograde as far as people are concerned. So you simply cannot contemplate having a government that can do anything more than stumble along for a few more months without trying to get a mandate. And that mandate is going to be determined very, very strongly on whether or not the Leavers have had their opportunity to say, we got, we got a man in number 10 who's taken us out. Now, we'll deal with the mess afterwards, and there will be a mess. Because in many ways, one of the things that I find most frustrating about this argument is this talk about no deal. Ultimately, there will have to be a deal. There's a reason why you know, Liam Fox wanted a lot of rollover deals, because WTO, World Trade Organization terms, are bog standard, to borrow Alistair Campbell's phrase. They're bog standard. They're not going to be good enough for fifth largest economy in the world. And we will lose influence. We will be concerned about the work with the United States at least because we heard one of their trade representatives saying that, you know, actually, Britain, I think I'll read between the lines, you're going to get screwed into the ground and you can take a choice between America or China. And this is not going to be easy. So let's say we're going to have a deal at some stage. Nonetheless, if you look at it, he's got to have a general election and he's got to get out under the terms he said he would do and he's going to fight like fury to get a working majority. Just finally, Katie, this new era of discipline and order, has it, has it made your job as a journalist a bit harder? I still managed to write a politics column. so I and you had lots of quotes in there, so clearly people are happy to talk to you. No, no one can resist, Katie. <laughs> yeah, I'm entirely the putty in her hands. Several anonymous quotes, so I don't think people are willing to stick their head above the power pit just yet. So so we can, st- we can still do our job, and clearly if an election comes, there'll be lots to do. I would just quickly say on the, on the election point, I think another thing that's really interesting about this number 10 is just they're not particularly bothered about MPs. I mean, there are clearly ministers and secretary of state that they think are there to serve the prime minister and we are in recess. But if you look at their response, for example, to Philip Hammond this week, uh, criticising the no-deal strategy, this government is very much about appealing to the country and trying to win over the public and then hoping from that, partly because they might be going to a general election, they can influence opinion that way. Whereas Theresa May's government would bring in MPs or they would you know try and convince certain people and I think there's a sense of a working majority of one there's no point wasting time there. Thank you Katie and Jonathan and finally would you take your dog to church or even your goldfish? St James's Church Piccadilly offers an annual animal blessing where pets from dogs to goldfish to budgies are all welcome at the service to be blessed by a member of the clergy. Melissa Kite's two working cockers were blessed by Reverend Lindsay Meader over the weekend, and she writes about it in this week's issue. Melissa and Lindsay both join me now down the line. Lindsay, can you start by walking us through what exactly happens at an animal blessing service? Yes, it's, it's a space in which we gather and invite people to bring any of their companion animals. And then we have uh, an introduction and an opening prayer and some readings. We also at our service include a roll call of remembrance, which is remembering and giving thanks for pets and companion animals who have died. And we bless all the animals that are present. And what types of animals do you normally have in attendance? Mainly at St James's we've had cats and dogs, but I have had colleagues who have had services with rabbits and guinea pigs and even the odd reptile. (laughs) Uh, Melissa, you took along your two cocker spaniels. Did, Did they have a good time? 
I think they did actually. They were a lot better behaved than we thought they were going to be. Um, we thought they would be sort of wrecking the place, so we were pl pleasantly surprised. And um, in fact, they sat almost immediately, they sort of sensed something and sat very quietly and curled up on our laps, which is almost unheard of for them when we're out in public. And they just sort of curled up and sort of quietly sat there and, and sort of took it all in. So. You know, I personally have always felt animals are quite soulful and spiritual, if you like. And, you know, I just felt that on some level they responded to it. Melissa, you start your piece by talking about how a tourist watching this would see this as quite a sort of unique British mm. phenomenon. Why do you think that is? Oh, I just think it was a, such an, an in, a lovely scene for a passing sightseer to, to sort of happen upon. I mean, if you wanted to know about the Brits and their, their love of animals, which slightly dotty love of animals, I mean, we really are quite nuts about them, aren't we? And I just saw a few sightseers wandering off uh, from Piccadilly and, and, and sort of gathering around the square watching us and, and I just thought it was a brilliant illustration of, of what we Brits are like with our animals. You know, we see them as equal to us at the very least, if not more important than us, you know, and we invest them with all this, not just love, but we just kind of invest them with a kind of as I say, I see them as being almost more spiritual than me in a way. I mean, they sort of responded to it. I think they enjoyed it even more than I did. And I'm sure that's just me kind of, um, I mean, the word is anthropomorphic, isn't it? But there's something particularly British about investing animals with, you know, sort of almost magical qualities. And it's, it, it's quite sweet in a way. Lindsay, are you a big animal lover? I am. I don't have any, any pets myself, but no, I'm particularly a dog person. But my main, main passion in terms of animals is actually dolphins, but uh, it would be much harder, to, obviously, to hold a dolphin blessing to <laughs> Quite a tricky one to bring to a service. <laughs> and just finally, for people, for listeners who might be interested, I mean, how, how, how often are these services held? Uh, we hold ours annually, but it's it's always worth looking online. Um, some churches are likely to hold a service around the 4th of October, which is the Feast of St Francis. And of course, St Francis was, was known as being a big animal lover himself. And I mean, are there other animal-friendly services aside from the blessing? I'd say... Certainly for us, most of our services, certainly our weekly communion, our Sunday Eucharist at 11 o'clock, we often have four, five, six, maybe more dogs um, attending who are very much part of our congregation. I think that's rather lovely, isn't it? I think that you allow owners to sort of bring their dogs and I think society is getting more and more dog friendly. And again, that I think is, is because we are recognising that animals are almost as important to people as as children in a way I mean I don't have children so my dogs are kind of my family so I just thought that was quite a nice way that that was being sort of recognized and also I, I think you were saying that you have a harvest festival as well which might might um, be another one that people would be interested to come along and see that might involve animals Yes, that's right. We've got our harvest service on the 6th of October and we're a member of the Anglican Society for the Welfare of Animals. So we have a guest preacher coming from there called Jeremy Fletcher. And I would certainly expect we'll have a good number um, of our regular dogs along uh, bringing their humans with them. Thank you, Melissa and Lindsay. And that's it for this week. If you pick up this week's issue, you can read everything we've discussed, as well as Rachel Johnson's diary, Jesse Norman's book review and more. And we have a special subscriber-only event in September. Sam Leith interviews the author Frank Dakota about his new book, How to Be a Dictator, on the 3rd of September in London for a live Spectator Books podcast. 
To get a ticket, visit spectator.co.uk forward slash Frank. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. Music.